The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Discover a positive path for spiritual living. Welcome to Voices of Unity with Reverend Jackie Fernandez. And this is Jackie Fernandez, and we are live today from our homes, not from Unity Village, which is, of course, my favorite place to record and, and cast this show from. But fortunately, technology allows us during this time to be the, the kind of flexible that we need to be to be safe and well. And I'm so excited to have as a guest on Voices of Unity today, my friend, my seminary classmate, and Enneagram expert extraordinaire, Nian Vong. Welcome to the show, Nian. Hello, so great to be here with you, Jackie. Ah, so good to have you. Um, you know, this is one of my favorite topics. I know it's definitely one of yours. So I think we're going to have so much to say, and it's going to be hard to to keep it to, you know, just our one hour show. <laughs> For sure, yeah. You know, and I have to say, it was really fun because when I was first introduced to the Enneagram was in seminary. And of course, we were in Robert Brummett's class together, the self-awareness class. And, you know, you were already in process of being a certified trainer, right, in in the Enneagram. So it was really cool for me just to have, you know, your um, advanced perspective, you know, to really dive into it because it's such a tremendous framework, I feel, for healing and for self-growth and awareness. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, for sure. It's such a powerful tool. I actually started studying it back in 2002. So so it's been quite a while for sure. But it's funny that you mentioned advanced because my first thought was, I still feel like I'm only an intermediate. Right? You know, it's such a phenomenally depthful system. But, it yeah. is. There's so much depth to it. So it really grows with you. Like, you, I mean, it's just one of those tools, which all the good ones are, that it stays with you. It grows with you. You can just keep going deeper and deeper. And you just always feel like that beginner's mind, which is a really good place to be, right? So I want to introduce for people who don't know you, I mean, you are a columnist for Unity Magazine, uh, as am I, which is so fun that we get to do that, sort of, you know, participate in creating that amazing um, resource, spiritual resource for people. Um, And you are the co-founder, or no, you are the founder for Evolving Enneagram. And I I went ahead and put the link, evolvingenneagram.com, on uh, my Facebook um, profile where I put the post for today's show. And so to know more about Nian, I mean, she's just extraordinary, a beautiful light in the world. And many people don't know, is a former Stanford law attorney who left her San Francisco law career to pursue a calling to support the evolution of consciousness, helping others to experience a greater sense of inner wholeness, oneness with spirit and unity with all life. And as a unity minister, and I love how you you are a self-described interspiritual minister, so I want to talk about that too in just a moment. But as a unity minister, Nian offers a compassionate path of transformation without dogma, a path that honors and is rooted in each person's unique background, temperament, and personal beliefs. So welcome, welcome, welcome. And let's talk about what, what do you mean by interspiritual minister? 
Well, um, for me, you know, even as I was in seminary, I remember struggling with this, like, well, people always ask, like, what, what do you mean by unity, like being a unity minister? And so, so I did some investigation. I looked into terms like, you know, integral Christianity, like terms to describe um, what I actually felt I am, you know, as a minister. And when I encountered the term interspiritual, I thought, oh my God, that embodies everything that I am because it's not just, it's not just like um, interreligious, it, it's spiritual. It's like more, even more open than that. And it testifies, the term speaks to the fact that if I'm, if I'm deeply honest with myself, my own, my spirituality is informed by uh, the world's religious and spiritual traditions, you know, Buddhism, uh, you know, I know that Charles Fillmore, like the unity movement has been deeply informed by, you know, the Eastern religions and philosophies. And so I actually thought that was um, a more apt name or description for my um, my personal uh, spirituality. And it's also it also reflects the fact that I hold that space for everyone I work with. I mean, I definitely work from a spiritual perspective, but that's going to inevitably. I mean, how could it not like embrace uh, the, the perspective of the person I'm working with? And so it's about me working to to kind of honor like, what's the space you're in? What's your belief system in this moment, which might be evolving and changing? And so it incorporates, like, uh, and and factors in uh, what's your personal history uh, with, you know, that which we sometimes call God or divine mind or love. And and so, so yeah, so interspiritual just felt like the perfect fit for, for who I am in truth. I love it. So it feels like it goes deeper than interfaith, which which tends to be associated more with, like you said, different religions. Or, and the inner spiritual just takes it sort of beyond that and really breaks it open. Right. For sure. I love that. I love that. Well, we've got a lot to cover with the Enneagram. I mean, like I said, we could we could have a whole series on this. I think, in fact, there is a show on the network on Unity Online Radio that is fully dedicated to the Enneagram. Um, so but we've just got an hour today. And so I think we should lay kind of a, a broad foundation of what is the Enneagram, what is this, you know, structure, what is the system, and and then how it um, how it plays with unity principles and teachings, and then you know my favorite piece of this is how we can apply it to our lives, you know, to um, to heal, to grow spiritually, to deepen our experience of spiritual practice, of the divine, of self, even. And of course, I, I love how on your website, you talk about bringing, you know, bringing yourself to a place of peace and love and joy and connection, both inner connection, connection with God and connection with community. So let's, let's get rolling. Yeah. Tell us about the Enneagram. <laughs> so, so the Enneagram is um, like, I mean, it's exploding in popularity right now, but it's it's best known as a personality typology. But that's actually, for from my point of view, sort of the most superficial um, aspect of the Enneagram. It's like that's just the beginning of the journey. So the Enneagram for me is foundationally a map of consciousness. How is how does that relate to unity teachings? Well, we teach that life itself, like the nature of reality is consciousness. So here we have this um, 
ancient map of consciousness that, of course, includes the personality, but also includes the aspects of consciousness that are related to our essence, to our divine nature. And so that's where, you know, we just begin by by naming our Enneagram personality type. And to me, that's almost like that's the trailhead to the wilderness of self. And so I look at this Enneagram typing uh, system as a way we, we begin the journey. So we look at the Enneagram and go, oh, which of these nine types am I connected to? This is not, it's not, um, I am my Enneagram type. It's more of recognizing how we've become identified and it, with this limited self, this false self known as our Enneagram type. And then by be recognizing um, what what uh, what of the nine Enneagram numbers we're most connected with, we begin to see, oh, my goodness, I have a fairly predictable pattern of, of thinking, feeling and behaving. And I might think that I'm truly spiritually free, that every day I make these these broad, expansive decisions. But if it's predictable based on your Enneagram type, chances are you're right. not living from you know, a free place and you're living through um, a series of compulsions and habits that, that you're not even aware of, that I'm not even aware of um, because I think it's me. And, um, you know, uh, Imelda Shanklin, Reverend Imelda Shanklin um, wrote this unity classic called What Are You? you know, um, or What Am I? You know, like this, this idea that like we don't know um, what we really are. It's a case of mistaken identity. And so the Enneagram names this false self, if you will, so that we can live more, f- more fully into our true nature. And so, so the Enneagram itself is ancient. Um, no one really knows like its true source because it goes back to the day when people weren't writing stuff down, you know, things were, right. were verbally. And so no one really knows, but all these different traditions, the Sufis, the Christians have laid claim to it because I think it has passed through those traditions over the years. And so the symbol itself is ancient, is more complex than any of us really realize. So we begin, we're just, the reason I call myself, you know, evolving Enneagram is it's the humility of understanding that it's like, I'm not the Uh, Enneagram. I'm still evolving even in my understanding. Like I love it. And the Enneagram helps us to evolve by by helping us to locate where we are on that map of consciousness. Right. Well, and, you know, it's it can work in groups too, like teams um, at work. I know I've shared a very basic, um, you know, presentation of this and uh, with my coworkers at work. And it just it's like any other system that it becomes then a common language and, and common place for people to work with and understand is of course yourself but but each other and it and it sort of it just opens conversation it opens hearts and and really perspective like and like I love how you described it if if how you're behaving is predictable then you're probably not behaving from you know your your wholeness but more from the, this conditioned you know compulsion like you described so let me ask you this, because I know I'm sure it comes up for you all the time. And I know, you know, I've also received the question a lot is, does your type change? So once you've typed yourself as a one or a seven or, you know, whatever number one through nine, um, does your type change? So um, I personally believe and I would say that um, uh, the bulk of the master 
Enneagram teachers in our modern day um, also teach that we never change our core type, that that default um, is always there. And um, but what happens is um, if you can imagine, uh, you know, the Enneagram image is a circle with nine points around it and lines, you know, connected to the various points. The way I like to think of it is so we have um, we have a default orientation to reside at one of those points in the Enneagram. Um, and the idea is once we recognize that, we um, then build into our own uh, consciousness uh, a sort of expansiveness to where we can tap into the qualities of the entire circle, the qualities of our full humanity and our divinity. But we still tend to default to a type. And so, so what, what might happen is as we evolve, as we expand our consciousness, we're able to tap into qualities that maybe look like qualities of other types. I mean, that's the hope, but that doesn't mean we, we, we ever change our default. And so looking at it like um, it's, it's a way of life to, to approach um, our Enneagram habits, again, not as, it's not like wrong to be our type, but it's more that it's limiting when we're over-identified. And so we can even look at it like once we once we do evolve from the type, well, there are special gifts to each of our numbers that when we're not um, stuck in them unconsciously, we can tap into them um, in a more sort of vibrant and fluid way. And so, so arguably even, uh, part of our life purpose resides in the type that we're sort of born with, if you will. And, and so, again, it's, it's this interesting interplay of first recognizing where the type limits us so that we can expand to the possibilities of, of tapping into whatever is skillful in the moment, whatever qualities, even if they reside outside our core type. But then also understanding that our core type isn't bad and that um, there's natural gifts given to people within each type structure that I think are, are inevitable blessings to the world when, when, um, when experienced and lived out in a more conscious way. I love that. So it's, you know, it's gaining that consciousness about what your type is, what those sort of predictable patterns are. But knowing that that is also part of your contribution, right, to to the world, to to the external expression of life, and and it doesn't have to be um, restrictive. Exactly. So you can expand and grow, sort of, you know, to a fullness, which is you know, and that that piece, like even if you just stick with your type, there's so much. Who room to grow and um, and to be in that? Then, of course, expanding like sort of to the fullness um, or to your growth point, if you will. Which I know, you know, we haven't quite got there yet, but um, it just continues to stay with. So maybe we should give like an overview of the nine types, um, and we could probably get that in before the break. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll try to speak quickly. Okay. <laughs> So as I mentioned before, you know, the Enneagram is a circle. And I, I want to say that I always teach that for me, the circle, the circle as a map of consciousness, a circle represents your wholeness, you know, and so that that like the Enneagram maps one person's journey. But if you're going to look at it just by 
personality, you can trace um, the different the nine different points. And so just this is such a, you know, this is just touching the surface of type. But just so people can get a sense of what we're talking about. If you look at the top of the Enneagram, it begins with the number nine and then it goes around. So I'll start with the number nine because it's at top. So um, so the nine's personality is sort of rooted in having lost sight of, of this holy idea of like holy love, which is this idea that like um, the beneficence or positivity of the universe um, shines on all. And nines are generally very positive and tend to believe like love, love is very shiny. But nines tend to think that that, that glow of life, the love of God in a way doesn't actually shine on them. So the nine personality type is built on this idea that, like, I don't actually matter, even though there's good, you know, in the world, like the sun doesn't shine on me. And so imagine if you believe that, you know, so nine's type structure is to merge with what it thinks does matter. And so depending on the subtype, which is one of the intricacies of the Enneagram, uh, uh, kind of beyond the scope, I think, of this introductory um, uh, talk on it. But like, depending on the nuance, the nine structure may want to merge with comfort foods or um, or what's comfortable in its environment. It might want to merge with its significant other. It might want to merge with the agenda of the group. So nines are often seen as peacemakers or mediators because there's a way in which they don't um, they resist uh, self-definition, like to claim I and mine. And you can see how this is valuable to know because there might be another type on the Enneagram where it's sort of like there's too much I and mine. <laughs> and whereas the nine is, is nine on the Enneagram, we want to encourage you to claim I want. This is my opinion. But, but the aversion is there's something deep down like that doesn't believe that my opinion matters, that it's okay to stand out, that because standing out feels like conflict and conflict creates this lostness where, well, if I'm not merged with the other, I'm separated by my beliefs, then I don't matter. And so this is where I'm going to even touch on here why this is a spiritual path for me. You know, from a unity perspective, it's, it's like dealing with the false belief that I fall outside the realm of love. And for a nine, like to, to really claim its power is about like sinking into the remembrance that I am one with love, that holy love, it, it includes me too. And so instead of efforting in the world to go like, oh, I want to claim my stake, I want to take right action. It's about sinking into the remembrance of the knowing that like, actually, I am loved, I am lovable, I belong to life to know that. So that's the nine. So moving into the one, again, this is such a, uh, you know, a really quick overview. The one's lost sight of the sure. whole perfection of life. And so it, it's sort of like if coming in, my soul is like, doesn't know that things are perfect. Well, my, my type is then going to be oriented around looking for what's wrong, not because I'm mean or, or, um, uh, or masochistic or sadistic, but, but the belief is, is this just this nagging, nudging feeling that like, there's something wrong, that the goodness isn't just innately here, that there's that, uh, that holy perfection is missing. Therefore, if I'm attuned to what's wrong, then I can fix it then I can better it, then I can bring good to the world. When, when from a unity perspective, we would say, oh, what I'm missing is the knowing that everything is perfect as it is already. 
And so, and so the path for the type one is the remembrance of that so that we can live like, how would you live then if you knew things were already whole and perfect? That's a different perspective than seeing imperfection and then trying to correct it. Right. And so and so the one self is that. But how does that show up? The one can often show up as hypercritical with a strong inner critic, you know, tending to be complaining and negative in the world. So if you're if you know someone who's a one, you can understand that actually what's driving that is some is a deep pain around that sense of something being wrong. And the one wondering, is it me? You know, maybe I'm bad. I'm fundamentally bad and I have to improve myself in the world to make it good. So so the two type structure is based on having lost sight of essentially like holy will and holy freedom. And what these mean in Enneagram terms is this idea that like, oh, there's one will, one holy will um, expressing sort of freely, freely in the world. And, and it, it operates to meet my needs. And the two somehow has lost sight of that. So its strategy is, oh, well, oh, shoot. Well, there are competing needs and wants in the world. And so the two just doesn't believe that my needs are going to be met. So its strategy is, well, I'm going to focus on other people's needs. The two is often called the helper, the giver. But it's not really about behavior. The Enneagram is about motivation. It's sort of about this deep belief that needs aren't just going to naturally be met by the world. So I'm going to be the best need like fulfiller ever you know like and and strategy is like I'll meet your needs somehow like like I've rejected my own because deep down I don't feel like they'll be met and so unconsciously you know I kind of think if I give enough then you will give back to me and then my needs will be met but I can't even own that I have needs because to own that would be to feel into like that deep sense of oh my gosh my needs, um, like, like I'm not worthy enough for my needs to be met by the universe or by God, you know. And so for a type two to honor and accept that it has needs and those are valid and maybe to ask for help in meeting those, that's a powerful journey home into going uh, into honoring that scary space that is like, oh, what if what if my needs aren't don't matter? Right. Um and and so the journey home into knowing that that my wants are part of the wants of the one and and that that I'm lovable and and I matter I'm worthy, mm-hmm. and so so the type three and feel free to interject at any time. I just yeah zoom. well I just I, yeah I want you to keep going but I do I, I want to point out like because what you mentioned with the type two is that it's about motivation so it's not to say that you know. Um, any type can be helpful. Any type can um, be sort of perfectionistic. Any type can be, you know, peacemaking and and, and that kind of thing. But it's about the motivation, right, um, in, in that behavior. So I just think that's a really important piece to keep pulling out as people are sort of taking this information in. All right. So take us to the next Yes. I mean, I can't emphasize that enough because especially in our modern day when the Enneagram has become like this meme culture where people are getting like that more superficial treatment of, oh, here, you know, and then people mistype themselves. They're like, oh, well, I hate conflict. Therefore, I might. Therefore, I'm a nine. And, you know, I watched them. I was like, well, they're pretty self-assertive for a nine. You know, like they're just, like. Right. 
thing about like, oh, well, if just because you don't like conflict. And then women tend to overtype us too, is because our culture is like women, you know, be the giver, right? And so, so, so thank you for noting that because it is vital. And this is also why uh, we shouldn't be typing other people because we're really looking at other people's right. We really don't right. know deep down what drives the other person. Yes. So, so that's so critical. So moving into type three, um, type three, again, this is from the perspective from which I teach the Enneagram, which is deeply informed by teachers like A.H. Almas, also known as Hamid Ali, you know, the, the perspective of drawing from the holy ideas, if you will. So the, the threes lost sight of like the holy law and holy harmony. This is like, this is like this, the idea that the activity of the universe is like naturally in motion. And, and the threes like, oh no, that's not true. Um, the doing of the universe doesn't just happen organically. I will take doing into my own hands. And so the, th the threes become the best doers of the Enneagram. They're the ones who are like confused um, doing for being, you know, and but there's something deep down that says that like not only will I become identified as a doer, but like I will be the most successful and accomplished doer. My identity, I lose sight of my identity um, um, just uh, in being myself. And so it's almost like I'm not worth anything unless I'm accomplishing something. And that's always by external standards. So I look out into the world to be like, you know, um, what is it that the people in my subculture um, idealize as, as successful and good? And so threes try to meet that on the outside. But there's always like threes have an endless list of tasks to to accomplish um, because of this sort of um, lack of deep trust that that doing of the universe, the activity of the universe, I'm just a natural part of that flow. I'm not a separate doer in the world is the deep um, truth that threes need to learn. And when they learn, they can rest in that truth more fully. It's also humbling because it's sort of like, oh, it, the doing isn't my accomplishment. You know, um, you know, even for Jesus to say it, uh, the father and I are one, you know, it's not I, but the father in me that does the work. It's like that. It's not I, but the spirit within that does the work. But the three doesn't know that. So it hustles in life. And so the type four has lost sight of the holy idea of holy origin, as if like, like I know, like I am one with my source, like that infinite, invisible source. And, and if, if the four is like, oh, I'm separate from that there's like this holy crap moment of like, well, if I'm separate, how am I going to get my needs met? How am I going to um, be worthy or get attention or uh, get support? Well, by being special. And so it, it's like, you think about having lost sight of holy origin, the understanding that I'm naturally original because I'm a unique expression of the one life. And the, the four doesn't know that. So it dev. That music means it's time for our break. So we'll come back, we'll pick up with a four, and we'll get through um, five, six, seven, and eight right after this break with Nian and Vang and the oh, Instagram. This is best. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. 
Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to Voices of Unity with Reverend Jackie Fernandez. And we are back with Reverend Nian, and we're talking about the Enneagram, and she's kind of giving us just a, a glimpse into each type, starting with the nine, and we ended just before the break on four. But I want to take a, a, a little um, divergence, and because we have a caller on, and I'd like to take our caller. Valerie, are you on the line? Oh, I am indeed. Thank you. <laughs> Hello. Hello, Thanks you for guys. calling in. Yes, Do you absolutely. Have a question for us? Yeah, I did. I um, you kind of were going through everything, and and um, I first was introduced to the Enneagram in like ninety seven, ninety six, ninety seven, um, with a good friend of mine. We were taking a class on the Enneagram. We went to a talk about it, and then took a class on it. And and at that point, I was um, I tested as a seven and. And and after some interviews, we kept it a seven. And then, though, years later, I was I was testing a little bit more, like a, a two and a and um, and so I, that. And you kind of talked about that. I think you kind of I wouldn't mind you know talking about how we kind of change and kind of m- um, mimic or go to other things, but it always comes down to our basic needs um, uh, for safety and security and things like that. And uh, for me, that's for me. Um, But, um, and um, because of different things in our lives. And, and so what kind of um, tests or would you recommend to kind of help as to look at it as we are progressing through our journey um, of learning with Enneagram? That's my question. (laughs) Oh, great question. (laughs) Yeah, thanks so much for bringing that up. There are a few things I would like to say about that. One is, um, you know, uh, when the Enneagram was taught a few decades ago, I think it, it, it had um, lost connection with some of its uh, the original teachings that were rooted in what we might call the Enneagram subtypes, you know, like the instinctual variance is, is another way of describing it. And so when I teach the Enneagram, again, this is another level of complexity, but it's invaluable. But it actually shows us that, you you know, a lot of people have mistyped because the variations create lookalikes to other types. And it's notable that it so happens that the social seven is a lookalike to the two. And so so I would I would be very curious to investigate further. I mean, this is you know beyond the scope of a phone call, I'm sure. But just really looking into like the core nature uh, of both types, because both sevens and twos are pos- have a positive outlook. So they both have that sort of, they can both have that cheerful energy. And so that looking at behavior and then the social seven, unlike other sevens that tend to be more I focused on like me and my fun, the social seven really is about the good and fun of the group and can be a lookalike to the two and sometimes even a little bit of one-ishness. And so, but really looking to the core, like, are you a fear type, which is the seven? Are you self-referencing? Twos forget and don't like, twos tend to not know what they need. Social sevens will know what they need, but then sacrifice it. 
but there's still a lot of the uh the tension of like what i actually really want you know and so so that's you know the first thing i would say of like exploring more deeply like oh like was I looking at some of the behaviors and connecting with that more so than like some of the, the roots of it? And of course, we'll get to seven soon. And another thing about that is, yes, you know, the ideas as we engage in the spiritual journey, we will exhibit um, characteristics of different types on the Enneagram. I like to talk a bit about it in terms of not like, oh, I'm, I'm going to type two versus I'm going to point to because it's then like the Enneagram is like a map of my consciousness and some of the characteristics like maybe I'm, I'm really exhibiting a lot of uh, giving a beneficence and, and, um, and other aspects like that. And so so the first thing is uh, being mindful and heartful about like, oh, investigating the deeper motivation underlying my type structure to make sure that I've accurately typed myself and then understand understanding that yes that of course um you know as we journey out that we're going to exhibit different traits but notably the seven is connected to the five and the one you know in a way where generally a seven that can often be more scattered always looking into the future for the next new thing and not able to be present in the good of the moment kind of learns mm -hmm. like a more withholding stance a grounded stance that that is um often reflected in what people experience in fives as a kind of withholding. There's a sobriety in that, right? And then, and then um, yeah. you know, the traditional teaching is that there are lines of integration and disintegration. But I, I can't, I don't know any modern teacher that teaches that nowadays because there's a deeper understanding that, you know, we have lines going from our point and we can go to the high or low of both of those other points. Like you could go to the higher the low of one, the higher the low of five, if you are uh, if you are uh, truly uh, at home in type seven, if you will. And so uh -huh. whether you go unconsciously or consciously. And so, uh -huh. so that's why again, it's so powerful to know the Enneagram, you know, and to kind of understand the root of it, because then we can also go, hey, if you're seven, then generally the path is about <laughs> really getting to, do I trust and believe in the that the present moment is um, holds goodness and joy for me, or is the present moment barren and I have to escape the present moment through lots of exciting new ideas in my head? Like that's that's more often like what that sevens do, or and, and twos are much more focused on um, others. It's really hard for the two to go like to think about self. It's focused on like what do others want. You know, what do I, others need? I, and, and so the discipline is going, what do I organically want to express um, irrespective of what is needed of me? Not in re response to relationship, but sort of out of my own create, creativity, if you will. So very different sort of journeys, right? Depending on the base type. So I hope that Absolutely. helps. It's really good. And it brings it back to that motivation, like you said. So some of the outward behaviors can, can look similar, but... It's that that process of really getting underneath the behavior to the motivation that that illuminates what's happening in terms of the Enneagram. I love that. Great question, Valerie. Yeah. Thanks for calling in. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you so much. All right. And
Yeah. So going back to the four, you know, my beautiful fours who are like, oh, (laughs) it's so suspenseful to wait, you know, to get your type clarified. So so the idea is that the fours, it's like having lost sight of that, like sense of my holy origin, like my my oneness with my source. There's like this um, emotional pattern of of longing you know, of, of melancholy, of suffering. And so the four becomes over-identified with it as if it's almost like the squeaky wheel gets the grease, as if, if I stay suffering, I'll somehow find joy. And of course, staying in suffering doesn't ever get you to joy, but there's an identity related to that longing and that suffering. And so when we know that we can help type fours, like embrace what's actually really scary for them to embrace, which is joy. Joy feels superficial. Joy feels foreign. And so to understand that joy is permissible and and it doesn't take you out of your specialness. Um, in fact, it, you, you come home to your holy origin and know that um, each person is original and unique um, uh, without having to even try. So that's the path. That's one of the paths for the four. So we mentioned five. The type five has lost sight of holy omniscience um, and holy transparency. And the mix of these holy ideas, like these faces of God is another way of of framing it or facets of unity, um, is is this idea that if I don't believe um, that I'm connected to like the wisdom and intelligence of the universe, in unity we might call that divine mind. And I believe that I'm separate. Like, so holy transparency is like, allows for this fluidity of being where, but the, but the, the five doesn't feel that. So it's like, here I am sort of physically separate and a five can feel very isolated from others. So there's, there's this stance of isolation and, and it's like, because of that, um, uh, you know, every type kind of is a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? So the seven isolates and therefore doesn't get nourished by humans. And um, so the seven stance is often like, well, almost like a giving up on- You, you mean five, right? Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, five. Yeah, five. It's, it's almost like a giving up on my, on my needs being met. So I feel like I have to keep guard what little I think I have. You know, um, and so there's a there's a very withheld stance in five. We call it um, avarice or stinginess. Um, and and so the five tends to 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 hoard what little it thinks it has. You know, when we say that avarice is the is the emotional pattern of five. You know, people are like, well, five aren't normally very materialistic or greedy. They could be the ones living in a barren apartment. It's the idea that they tend to guard what little they have, whether it's their uh, emotions, um, uh, their finances, but also their um, knowledge base. And so the five thinks, oh, I can't really function in the world, but I'll I'll study up. So a lot of the issues that five space is, I, I need to prepare, I need to learn more, I need to read more. But the analogy I always use is, it's like the five sits behind a castle, and instead of living life, reads picture books about life, preparing to go live it one day. But but um, right. so the path of growth for the five is to actually take that action and step into the world and risk that like you can actually function in the world and it's not going to deplete you and that relationship might actually nourish you. But that's that's a risk that is ultra scary for fives. And so we we, we want to be extra gentle as fives are, are reaching out in, in relationship because there's a belief that the world gives um, takes too much and gives too little. 
<clears throat> so that's the five stance. The six is um, the six is lost sight of um, holy faith and holy strength. And again, superficial summing up of this is is this idea that like like uh, spirit as the ground of my being, you know, like that that holy holy faith isn't a belief kind of faith, but it's like a felt. Um, physical, visceral, experiential knowing um, uh, that there's a ground beneath me. And because the six has lost sight of that within itself, it seeks to create st stability and security in the world. And depending on the subtype, again, uh, depending on the instinctual variant, it's going to look for that either in its finances or sometimes in people or in belief systems. And so they might look for it in different ways, but the root of it is we need to know that basic ground of being within yourself and learn to trust yourself um, and, you know, sort of like have faith in yourself when instead the six looks to have faith in something in the world and seeks to create stability out in the world. But it's never enough, right? Each type keeps looking, looking, looking in the world. As I often quote, you know, from A Course in Miracles, the ego's mantra is seek, but do not find. And right. oh, that's so good. Right? Every, every Enneagram personality type is a way of seeking in the world what will never satisfy it, right? So never, nothing in the world is secure enough to give you that base of inner security that you're looking for. When you know that, you can go within to find that you yourself are trustworthy. You know, there's a ground of being within you. And so now we go to the yeah. seven, possibly mm -hmm. helping Valerie too. You know, so the seven is, is, um, has lost sight of this whole, holy idea of, um, it, 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 of holy plan, like the evolution of good, of joy, it is already happening. And, and so the seven uh, gets obsessed in planning, just like the one lost sight of like the activity of the universe is like happening. The seven's like, this evolution is not happening. So I will need to plan for my future good. So the seven's type structure is oriented toward mentally, mostly, I mean, sometimes also in actuality, like it's, it's self-entertaining within itself of all these like possibilities and ideas. And, you know, sevens are notorious for, for not wanting to commit because there's a deep fear of being limited and sevens on the surface look like they're very positive. But I, I always teach my folks of actually you're very, you have a very negative view of the present moment thinking the future will hold the good, but never the present moment. And so the mind gets overactivated, sort of filling with ideas and possibilities and, and doesn't find grounding. It ends up with the emotional pattern of what we call gluttony, which is a little bit of this, a little bit of that, but you wonder why you're never sated, why you're never satisfied or filled because, because it's like you're, you're just sampling life. You're not actually sitting down to a meal to eat. You know, because it's scary to sit down because you fear that like it's the good isn't here, that right now is actually barren like a desert, that it doesn't actually contain that joy. So if anyone forces a seven to sit down, the seven is like already fantasizing about like amusement parks and the next new adventure or, you know, because yeah, you're missing out on something. <laughs> That's the fear, the fear of missing, that FOMO fear of missing yes. out. It was invented by the seven, by the type seven. Right? But that behavior, again, if we can get to the source of it, it's like not eat, trusting the present moment, right? And that the good is actually here 
in the here and now and only here in the here and now. And so pressing into the moment and the moment may at first feel barren. You know, the seven is disconnected with its heart center where it can actually feel the joy of things and the love of things. And so pressing into the heart center and uh, giving space to connect with the heart is one way. Um, but also practicing presence in the moment is so vital to where you're like, oh, this moment can satisfy, you know? And so, so there's a deepening that enriches the life of the seven in a way that, that they don't habitually trust because of having lost sight of that particular holy idea of holy plan. And, um, and, and so the next type, eights. So the eight has lost sight of holy innocent, uh, of its innocence, but also um, the holy idea of holy truth. And holy truth um, from an Enneagram perspective is this idea that like we are one, that there isn't this duality in life, black and white, good and bad, but the eight doesn't fundamentally know it. It's like, no, Nian, you're kidding. Look at the world. They're good guys. They're bad guys. I'm going to be on the good team and I'm going to protect um, all the, the vulnerable folks against the bad guys. And so the eight stance is always sort of like against. So there's like a tendency to the first reaction is to be against. And, and so so this is this is super important to know because um, what it's lost sight of again is this holy innocence. You think of the Garden of Eden, you know, the of like, oh, when Adam and Eve partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it's like a perception of duality. They lost their innocence. And there's a preciousness within every eight that is unknown to most people. Um, eights can come across um, really with that. If you imagine the world has lots of bad people, you got, I, I need to be strong. I need to be tough. And so the surface looks like that, but inside there's a lot of softness. So eights who, be, who engage the spiritual path begin to recognize their own softness and vulnerability and are able to show it in a way where others can support them. But what happens is, you know, my joke is like the eights, whereas the fives have a castle wall, the eights have a barbed wire fence, you know, it's sort of like, yeah, get through right. this first. And then maybe, maybe then you've proven yourself enough that I'll show you my soft side. But by that time, everyone's bleeding. <laughs> you know, like, right. it's wondering why, like, they never get to be held. They always have to be the strong one. They have to be the protector. And it's the like, sevens don't want any walls or fences anywhere in sight. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so, yes, that's, that's a perfect way of describing it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so, but the eights definitely, you know, um, and eights are often, you know, misunderstood in that, again, it's like, well, let me ask you, I'm going to stop you right there, because I actually received a question from someone who is, at, uh, I, I believe, a self-identified type eight. Um, and the question is, why do eights always get the shaft? So you're you're, you're about to say the, the eights are often misunderstood. So uh, why do eights always get the shaft, and especially for women? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, because that eight stance is one of, I mean, it's aggressive, it's strong. And I'm not sure if this person is coming from a unity uh, community or background, yes. but, but that, I mean, number one, you know, anger, aggression, uh, our society uh, doesn't quite know how to hold space for that, right? And well, there are two things happening. One is within unity communities, there's that sort of orientation that's very seven-ish, very nine-ish. It's sort of like peace and joy, everybody. You know, that that kind of, that can overlook and not fully embrace the, the part in us that can get angry. That's a very human trait, you know? And so I think that 
the one of the reasons it's vital, I think, for the whole any, I mean, the whole unity movement to learn the Enneagram is understanding this is this is part of our humanity. And we have as a culture, as a community, tended to shut that down. And anger is a vital part um, and, and a necessary part of our humanity. It's more about when we actually own and honor it. We can express it in skillful ways rather than in ways that actually break and destroy, you know, relationship. And what happens to eights a lot of times is um, as an eight evolves, you tend to understand that like, oh, you know what? Yeah, everybody, all I was, often eights will say like, I was just talking passionately and everybody thought I was yelling at them, right? You know, I was just being passionate. What happens is if you think you need to brace yourself against the world, what you've done is created a, a an outer construct that that um, is more likely to to break all the porcelain in the shop, you know, like without you realizing it. So when an eight becomes conscious, it's not about changing who you are fundamentally. It's about recognizing that you are you come across bigger than you even are aware of, and and so it's it's about. It's about really that self-awareness to go, oh, wow. You know, and just like a nine, a nine might be like, well, I spoke up. And everyone's like, no, you didn't. You know, the nine might be like, well, I wonder if maybe people think they might do this. And that's not speaking up, right? But the nine, they did. And the eights kind of have the opposite issue, which is like, I was just sharing my view, a little view. And everyone thought you were claiming the truth for every other human being in the group, right? You know? And so understanding yourself goes, oh, like, like I overdo that because I've lost connection with my own vulnerability. But when I can soften into that, I mean, even arguably, you know, the, uh, you know, one way I like to look at it is like most eights, like if you're the underdog, if you're the vulnerable, if you're the puppies and the babies, eights, you know, will tend to defend and protect those innocents, right? But mm-hmm. as an unconscious often way, of protecting its own innocence, that there's a vulnerability within there that that if you're willing to tap into and be softer in your being, then it's like, then you get more of what you want, which is like a, a outer strength actually holding you, having space for your presence in the world. So it's twofold. You know, it's both, yes, as a community, we could do better to, to honor um, sort of our, our anger and and uh, do a better job but we need to each do that within ourselves right mm-hmm. and then we can hold that space for eightness more but also eights within themselves uh, could do well to, to honor that vulnerability you know that that's inside and so you can see now how okay how amazing is this that we're talking about individual transformation but individual transformation very obviously unnecessarily impacting um, yes. the transformation of the world Yes, because as we do our work as a seven learns to press into the moment that moments that feel painful because sevens that running away is often a running away from pain. But if mm-hmm. you learn to press into that and be present to it and embrace it, then it's like we come into our fullness. We come into our wholeness more. You're able to hold space for others in a bigger way. So a lot of times, you know, the conflict in the world and the struggle and strife is that people activate the part in us we have yet to embrace as part of our humanity. And so the Enneagram helps us to embrace our wholeness that enables to better embrace our oneness with others in the world because we cast out others um, who reflect the qualities that we haven't given ourselves permission 
to to experience within our own being. Mm. So. Yeah, that's really good. Oh my gosh, we are almost out of time. <laughs> this is like this went by so fast, but you've given so much, so much good stuff and so much insight into you know the depth of this system, and we're just like barely scratching the surface. So we're, you know, we're going to have to close here in just a few minutes. And I'm wondering if, if you can give like a synopsis or just what your response would be to um, how someone might begin to use the Enneagram for like the ideas of healing and connection. And, and I know you've kind of woven that in and through each of the types um, because each type will do it differently, but what's like an overall um, strategy or, um, action that can be taken to really incorporate the Enneagram? Mm. Um, Great question. Um, So I'd begin by saying the first step really is like discerning your Enneagram type, because that will help you to understand the ways in which you may even sabotage your own spiritual practice and journey, you know, because a seven's like, oh, well, you know, that path was okay, but that's boring now. Like I'm moving on to the next one, never deepening in any particular way, you know, and and so each type has a way or twos are like, I'm too busy helping other people. You know, it's not it's never about me. And when the two really needs to look within and be willing to entertain the fact that maybe I wasn't acting out of the purest motivations in that moment. So it, it's so, this is why I love the Enneagram. It helps us to, to, to tailor the spiritual journey of like what's needed for your next step. So the first step would be to find a way to discern. I'd say that the online tests, you know, the ready test, R-H-E-T-I is one of the best, but most um, teachers don't recommend it. I mean, the ideal way is to take, to read a lot of books, take a lot of classes, learn the whole Enneagram. But because most people aren't going to do that out the front end, you know, taking a test is one piece of information, but it's not determinative of your type. So take the test, check out your top three. You know, um, I do Enneagram typing interviews. I know a bunch of folks who who also, and I can make referrals if I'm too busy. But so that's a beginning step. For me also though, um, to never leave it at intellectual knowledge to engage spiritual practice. Um, the primary one I recommend is centering prayer because it's a practice of surrendering your egoic self. It's like a practice of dying to who you think you are. So there's a lot of humility um, in that act of surrender that says, I don't even know the truth of who I am. So spirit within me, as me, show me. And and so in that repeated way of dying to your self-concept, allowing the spaciousness of the dynamism, the organic nature of your essence to emerge in each moment, not limited by your own self-construct, if you will. So I love it. So good. Well, you've given us so much to work with and think about. And that music means we're out of time. So learn more about uh, Nian and her work at evolvingenneagram.com. And until next week, tune in and tune up in spirit. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Hi, I'm Liz Winter and I have been a medium and a spiritual development teacher for over 30 years. On my podcast, All Aboard the Mediumship, I want to share the message with you that there is a wealth of love and comfort available to you from the spirit world. 
On my podcast, you can experience this comfort and peace for yourself through gentle guided meditations and helpful messages. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you never miss an episode. Part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network.